before we start today's episode, we thought it'd be right just to say a small thank you. EuropeLex is a team of volunteers from all walks of life and all corners of the world. However, because we are volunteers, sometimes situations change in people's lives, which means they're no longer able or perhaps don't want to keep working with us. And that means we have to say goodbye to people. And this week has been one of those weeks. It's an odd one having to say goodbye to someone that you've never actually met in person, but someone you've actually worked incredibly close with. And this week we had to say farewell to our very good friend, Anton Skusevs. He was a committed and dedicated colleague and incredibly talented in his knowledge of language, politics, and the new places that he's moving to are incredibly lucky to have him. We'll miss him incredibly and his input to our project and his knowledge of politics on Europeans' eastern frontier particularly, and also the many, many fun facts that he used to share with us. Antons, we wish you all the best and you'll be missed by all of us in the team. We look forward to seeing what you're going to be doing soon. And as we say in Europe, not goodbye, but until we meet again. Au revoir. Hello, and welcome to the Europe Elect podcast. I'm Ewan Healy. And in this Europe Day special episode, we're going to be speaking to the founder and director of the European Democracy Lab, Professor Ulpika Gehu, on the past, present and future of our lovely continent. Also, later in the episode, we'll be celebrating our continent with what else but a battle of wits, a famous Europolex quiz. I say famous, this is the second one we've done. Who's going to be <laughs> suffering the trials of a Europolex quiz this week? But my co-host, Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Very well. Are you looking forward to celebrating Europe Day this week? Definitely, always. I'm not really sure how, except, you know... <laughs> drink, drink some beer from a different country, I think that's... <laughs> Yeah, drink beers from different countries. I wish I had a flag, but I don't. Um, be, so yeah, I guess I'll focus on the cultural aspect. EU flag rolling out across my whole street so that no one can drive around. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Should we start with some news, Gabriel? Yes, yes, of course, as always. So let's start with COVID-19. Um, it's hard not to these days, unfortunately. So European countries are beginning to ease their coronavirus lockdowns, and even those most affected are doing so uh, over the coming weeks. Since our last podcast episode, in Spain, people can now go out for short walks and exercise breaks, uh, and kids are allowed to go out once a day, accompanied by adults now. Parks and gardens in Italy reopen this week too, and people are able to visit relatives living in the same region. Stores and museums will open in less than two weeks from now. Moving on to Germany, hairdressers and barbers are reopening there. However, gatherings of more than two people are still banned in most of the German states. And in general, more and more states and countries are currently implementing different phases to slowly reopening and easing the lockdowns in the near future. Hopefully we're getting towards the end of the tunnel, seeing the light at the end. Yeah. Though, before we get on to positive stories, I have to talk to you about recession. Official figures and estimates have confirmed that both France and Italy have entered recession over the first quarter of this year. France's GDP decline was 5.8%, uh, that's gross domestic product, uh, in the first quarter of this year, which can be compared to 1.6% uh, contraction during the first three months of the 2009 recession. So you can see that there is a significantly larger uh, contraction. Uh, but we'll, be, we'll be able to see in the coming months whether countries will be able to shake that off more easily than they did during the last credit crunch or Great Recession. Italy saw its GDP shrink as well by 4.7% uh, over the same period, the first three months of this year, uh, marking the worst figure they've had since 1995. Uh, that's the, the when, when records began 
the whole of the European Union's GDP has also decreased by 3.5%. So now onto Poland. On Wednesday evening, the leader of the right-wing Law and Justice Party, Jarosław Kaczynski, and the leader of the right-wing Porozumienie Party, Jarosław Gowin, published a statement in which they announced that the Supreme Court of Poland will invalidate Sunday's Polish presidential election, since the government will take no action to make the vote happen. To make it a bit clearer, it's all very confusing. The elections will technically be held, but no one is going to participate in them, and this will be a reason for the Supreme Court to invalidate them. Next week, the Speaker of the Lower House of Polish Parliament, Elżbieta Witek, will announce a new date of Polish presidential election, with July and August being consideration. After that point, the whole electoral process will start again. Um, it is possible that after invalidation by the Supreme Court, candidates would have to collect signatures supporting their candidature again for the next election. But that's all uh, uncertain for now. But what we do know is that polls are definitely not going to vote this Sunday as the government initially planned. In sort of more happy news, the 4th of May, so this week, yesterday for me, a few days ago for you when you listen, was the 30th anniversary of Latvian Declaration of Independence from the Soviet Union. So on the 4th of May 1990, the country's uh, Supreme Council adopted the so-called Declaration of the Restoration of Independence of the Republic of Latvia. Some more exciting news. The Europelex monthly European Parliament projection uh, has recently been published, featuring all polls in our system from Europe and month of April. And the last few months' responses to the COVID-19 pandemic has led to increased support for more mainstream, you can say, centre-right, EPP and centre-left SND parties, as we've discussed before in our podcasts. Both of those groups have gained five seats uh, in our projection, and the EPP is now projected to gain more seats than during the 2019 elections. Um, that's if there had been an election in April. In terms of losers, as of now, the right-wing ID group, as well as the Greens, have seen losses, losing five seats each month on month, according to our model. The latter, so the Greens, that's now the biggest loser since the 2019 election, barring, of course, the non-inscrete group of independent MEPs, which was previously dominated by the Brexit party, which, for obvious reasons, are no longer sitting in the parliament. But yeah, the Greens' surge can be said to have been can have been lost over the over the past year um, in Europe as a whole. You can check out all these figures and read our blog contextualizing them on our website, which has actually been updated. So it's all very shiny and new. We're very proud of it. And that's europeelects.eu. Definitely go check out the new website. Uh, up next, we've got a fantastic interview with an incredibly talented academic. And later on, we've got a quiz. So stick around for the next two segments. Europe Day, we thought there would be no better way than to assess where we've been as a continent, where we are now, and where we're going. And to do this, we've got with us someone who knows Europe perhaps better than anyone else. She's an award-winning political scientist whose career has taken her to the top of both the academic and the governmental world. On top of being a member of the World Economic Forum and the European Council on Foreign Relations, she's the author of countless books and content on the state of Europe, and is also the founder and director of the European Democracy Lab. Professor Ulrike Gero, welcome to the Europelex podcast. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to be with you because it's really, truly a pleasure to speak in English over about Europe and with, with Brits and Scots um, in this sort of Brexit times. We should not forget that this is also a very important factor to mention. Yeah. So 
speaking of, let's start with today. You know, what is your diagnosis at the moment for the state of Europe and the European Union? You know, are we in a good place? Are we going in a good direction? Or is the union perhaps in danger? Um, well, this is, uh, um, it's, I, I think it's a question where you can only give a, say, dialectical answer. Obviously, I think um, the union, the EU is unfortunately in bad shape. I mean, mention the Brexit, mention Corona, mention what happened in Italy, the pictures we saw just recently, mention the refugees camp in, in Lesbos, mention the uh, incapacity to fix the banking union since a decade. I mean, uh, there, there were lots of crises. Europe has been experiencing a whole decade of crisis. Nobody's out there um, to defend the EU is in good shape. And I haven't been even mentioning the erosion of democracy in Hungary or Poland and so on. So um, the real question is, what we do? What 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 do we do with the bad shape? Do we have a vision to turn it around into something new, something more democratic, something more social? Are we are we still dreaming of a different Europe? That is the question that I'm posing. And uh, if you can see the Euro Corona crisis in this context, sort of. Um, what could be the good coming out of a bad situation, then perhaps we have a chance. But we need to then envision what we want on this continent. So do you think that there is appetite amongst member states or states of Europe for that? You know, you've been a long time advocate of um, a united European Republic. Is that is that what countries want? Well, my question is not whether that's what countries want. My question is what the citizens want. And I think this is really the momentum we are experiencing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I know perfectly that I'm talking with somebody in Scotland, in the UK, um, who is now on a Brexit course because half of the citizens have decided to leave the European Union. But still, there's half of the of the of the Brits, of the Scots, uh, who want to stay. And um, and I, I think we are now facing a crucial point in the discussion what Europe is and who decides what Europe should become? And the real question is, do the states decide this or do the citizens decide it? And um, if we let the states decide, then I'm more frustrated. And we see what is going on in the ECOFIN Council on Corona bonds, on Euro bonds and all these things. And we see that the system is stalled and deadlocked in many respects. But if I look at citizens' dimensions and dynamics, by the way, I'm familiar with many citizens' initiatives, solidarity um, uh, initiatives with um, the Remain camp in the UK. Look at the 9th May or what is happening. We are... I'm also in a team which is preparing a huge campaign called Citizens Take Over Europe, which you Google very easily uh, with 29 NGOs. And so what I want to point to is a deep, deep discrepancy between what citizens, European citizens all across the continent apparently want or would be able to envision for Europe and what the governments and the heads and states deliver. And if we could look closer at this, at this discrepancy, and think about how we can articulate that we have still last majorities, vast majorities in most European countries who want Europe, not necessarily the EU in its current structures, but who want not to lose Europe, then I think we have a capacity to move out of this crisis beyond the European Council and what the Council wants. So talking about this popular opinion about the, the people's voice, you know, recent polls out of Italy, for example, have been sort of less than good news for for the European movement, um, advocating leaving both the EU and the Eurozone as those who advocate to sort of remain in them. Um, and, you know, over the last six months, we've seen polls out of the Netherlands, which have seen fairly high support for a referendum on membership 
of the European Union and the Czech Republic, for example, you know, has got a, a strong 30 or 40 percent of people who, you know, advocate leaving the European Union. I mean, what's missing? How, how are people's minds going to be changed by the movement for a more united Europe? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I do not want to change people's mind. I actually think that many people um, who are discussing the, the flaws of democracy in the European system and the EU system, that they are actually right. Uh, social science in Europe has been talking and writing about this endlessly. Many uh, British academics like uh, uh, Calypso Nicolaidis uh, and many others. Um, so uh, we know that, they, that we are living in a flawed system. So if you have now populist so-called populist appraisal against it is it so um is that so bad or is this so wrong you know so i i, I just want to say this i'm not sitting here with an educative program changing people's mind i think if there's contest against something then perhaps there is a valid reason for it and i'm more about to think about these reasons so now looking at italy i've been seeing these pictures and i have been scared 50 percent of the italians who now want to leave the european union this is basically an opinion poll like you know like what led to the brexit um i have my own sons my kids in paris i'm a german i'm working in austria um, i am among those 20 million europeans who have um shared their place where they live and the place where they work or the place where they love or the place where the kids are, and I've spread this across different European countries. So there's one point, again, what the countries want and one what the citizens want, and it's really different, totally different um, data. We are, are having a lot of euro, let's, let me be very precise, there's a lot of, say, Eurobarometer data out there that if you ask citizens, for instance, do you want um, a European healthcare system or you want European social system, you want a European unemployment scheme, yeah, you get vast majorities, 60-65%, if you uh, poll these uh, things in an aggregated way. yeah. Um, if you leave these discussions to the European Council, then you will have a German veto or an Austrian veto or a Dutch veto. But still, if, for instance, the German government in a European Council meeting decides against the European unemployment scheme with this argument, we can't afford a transfer union and all of these things, you always must acknowledge that in the Council, the head of state only represents half of the German opinion because there are many other Germans who would love to see a German unemployment fee. So what I'm arguing here is that we are in a deadlocked situation, which is a crisis of representation. Many things that actually most or many European citizens would want, like a financial transaction taxation or a European unemployment scheme or perhaps a European basic income, whatever we may want to discuss in the future, these things can gather a majority among citizens in Europe, but not in the council. And so we have a crisis of representation. And I would rather frame it that way than always insisting on the populists who shout against the EU and then blame these populists that they are wrong and that we need to change their minds. I think it's our task to work on a functioning political system that basically materializes what most of European citizens would want and that the citizens really have the feeling that they are involved into European democracy and that they can decide on things. Let me add one little sentence on the Italian um, case with the polls. It's one thing to ask the Brits whether they want to leave the EU and they decided yes. It's another thing to ask the Italians to leave the EU because even if they left the EU, what about the euro? Would they leave the euro and can they leave the euro? 
So in a way, it's really two distinct questions. And I would argue it's not so easy to leave the euro. Already we see with the Brexit that apparently it's not so easy to leave the EU. But leaving the euro is still another dimension. And we saw 10 years ago that even little tiny Greece was basically impossible. So with Italy, I think the question is not so much, can we turn the wheel back? The question that I have on the table is, what do we need to do to get to a social Europe with the citizens being the sovereign in a full-fledged parliamentarian system so that Europe works for the citizens and so that we can cope with populism other than saying we need to leave the EU? I find that really interesting, that idea that Perhaps the you know both sides of, of the European argument are having at this sort of missing the point or having the wrong conversation about Europe. You know the question you know in, in the polling industry and in political analysis is always you know what do you think of the EU? But actually, you're right is that, that there are so many more aspects to this about the European project. And actually, if you ask people about aspects of the European Union, such as uh, potential for for a social Europe or other parts, people are supportive. But actually. It's, it's the European Union's institutions which have garnered this sort of negative sort of mindset, which is what so-called populists have been able to sort of gain support on the back of. I totally agree. And let me frame it this way. I think we are really on, how would you say that in English, on the knife's edge mm -hmm. uh, in the discussion in which we either decide that the discussions we have about the future of Europe, we lead them by national containers, which is the Germans want this and the Italians want this and the Brits want this. My thing is that I don't see the Brits. What I see today is half of the Brits want this, the other half wants that. I see a British initiative that uh, some Brits want permanent European citizenship. There is a, there is a European Council um, thing ongoing, where the question is whether the EU granted European citizenship and whether that granted European citizenship can be withdrawn by the UK when the UK is leaving or whether that European citizenship has a permanent status. I wish the European Court will decide that it is permanent status. I also see Scots who want different things than Brits. I see basically also people from Wales, Cardiff, who think now about if the Scots take the direction to remain in Europe, perhaps Wales can remain in the Europe, even if the UK is leaving. I see a discussion in Catalonia. I see, um, uh, to make the, the, a, long point, uh, a long story short, the, the point is, who are the Brits? Who are the Germans? You know, I feel more closely with uh, Germans um, being in favor of European integration than with Pegida Germans who tell me that there is something uh, like that, that Europe is bad. So if I say the discussion is on a knife's edge, I think we now have to take a decision whether we discuss about the future of Europe along national lines, border lines, or along political lines and ideological lines. For the question whether we want or not a European unemployment scheme, to just pick that example, it's not so important whether you are Portuguese, Slovak, Irish or German, but it is important whether you are more progressive, more liberal or more conservative. So if we could shift the system towards um, a full representation of citizens, a different kind of parliamentarization, what I mean is one person, one vote, different constituencies, because the real cleavages in Europe, be them the social cleavages, the economic cleavages, but also the cleavages in the opinion towards Europe and yes or no, 
has more to do whether you are in an urban mm. sort of environment and more educated or whether you are in a distant uh, rural area. That has more to do on whether you are pro-European or less European. It has less to do with being Italian, German or Czech. And that is my central point. If we could shift a system to um, working on aggregated ideological borderlines discussion rather than making always containers of nations, I think we would have a chance to shape a social, ecological and democratic Europe. And we are not far from that. We are not far. Because we have already, if you have seen, I give a very clear example. We had the initiatives of the four mayors of Budapest, Bratislava, uh, Warsaw and Prague. And these mayors basically said, um, we are not with Orban. We are not with Kaczynski. We want to have a different Europe. So they were going against their state of government in the EU Council and said, he is not representing us because we are the mayors of these four towns and we want Europe and we want Europe to be social, green and democratic. And so what I see is that we are already in a momentum in which we are disaggregating the, the so-called nations and the homogeneous national representations. And if we could go down further that road, I think we have a chance to get a different Europe beyond the European Union. Let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Obviously, you've mentioned, you know, the those sort of agreement between uh, the mayors um, and, and other sort of movements um, from the SNP and Plaid Cymru in the UK. What do you say, you know, how do you reckon this vision of Europe with, you know, it's a significant majorities in a lot of countries or, or significant minorities, depending on the country, who are concerned about losing their sort of distinct national or cultural identity into into Europe, you know, um, you know, obviously the the voice of the SNP and and Plaid Cymru and, and the independence movements in Scotland and Wales are about a national identity which is different to sort of the UK identity or so called, you know, and you know, in 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 Poland and in uh, Italy there are movements which say, you know, we are Italians, we are Poles, why should we uh, lose that into the greater European model? What do you say to people with those concerns? Well, what do I say? First, uh, um, uh, I would love um, that the book which I just wrote, What is the Nation? And um, I have the English translation ready. And I'm just trying to find a British publisher or an English publisher, because uh, that's the question that I'm dealing with in that book. And what is the answer? The answer is that we are used, like you say, that nation has been to do something with identity. But in essence, it's wrong. There is a very interesting book of a French sociologue, Marcel Mauss, who lived in the 1920s, who, by the way, was a nephew of Emile Durkheim, the big French uh, sociologue. And he gave the definition of the nation. The book is entitled The Nation or the Sense for the Social. Die Nation oder der Sinn für Soziale. The Nation or the Sense for the Social. Meaning that ultimately what makes you a nation is the social fabrics you are living in. And that is true, for instance, for the UK. I mean, you say you are Scottish or English or Belizish or whatever, Irish, yeah? What holds you together as a nation is in which framework, institutional framework, your solidarity is institutionalized. So for me as a German, 
uh, I'm from Rhineland, you know, and whether I fly, say, from Düsseldorf to Munich or to Vienna, the only thing I say is Vienna is as culturally not close to me than Munich because I'm from Rhineland and whether Bavaria belongs to the Federal Republic and Vienna belongs to the Austrian Republic is basically a fact of history, is a contingency of history, by the way, well disputed. I mean, remember 38 and Anschluss and all these things. So what constitutes the nation in essence is the legal framework, is those who decide on the question on power together and ultimately those who are in the same social fabric. What I mean is what relates me to somebody from Bavaria as somebody from Rhineland is not so much that I'm also keen on Oktoberfest, but it's that at the end of the day, if I fail in life and Peter in München, Munich fails in life, we get Hartz IV, which is the basic income in Germany. But a Greek person who shares the currency with me does not get the basic income. So what I offer as an interpretation about this loss of identity is I would like to construct a Europe and a federal European Republic, not a super state, not a super state at all. But I would love to give people back their identity, their uh, regional language, their regional um, identity, supremacy, uh, participation in a system and so regional food, all of this but to constitute the social fabrics at a European level, in which case we could have a horizontal network of Bohemia, Scotland, Catalonia, Rhineland, Bavaria, um, you name them, Savoyen, um, Umbrian, Andalusia. Everybody got, keeps its identity, but what we would do, and that is essential, we would do one single thing, and the single thing is, we would give legal equality to all European citizens and legal equality in the sense which make the holiness of being citizen. Le sacre du citoyen, what is the essence of being a citizen? The essence of being a citizen is the right to vote, the right taxation and the social access. And if we were to share these three things as European citizens on an equal footing, nobody would be stolen its identity Indifference, all those being in the more rural areas would be upgraded socially and they could share a social European framework whilst keeping their identity. And that, in essence, would be a European Federal Republic. Republic because Republic in the sense of Cicero yeah, uh, means nothing else than legal equality for all citizens. One sentence. This, you think we have it. But no, we don't have it. We are European citizens. I mean, now, unfortunately, the Brits may use the European citizenship, but we are only told to be European citizens. We are, the EU treats us as European citizens only in our capacity as consumers and in our capacity as um, workers. Yeah? And in these capacities, we are we having equal rights in the European Union, but we are not having equal rights in what Ozan Vallon calls the sacred of citizenship, which is voting, taxation, and access to social rights. And if we were to establish this, everybody could keep its regional identity, language, and so on and so forth, but still we would be really European citizen and we could build a full-fledged parliamentarized European democracy. Let's just finish up with a quick thought about what's the corona crisis, what coronavirus might mean for the future of 
uh, Europe as a whole. And I think we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't talk about this for a moment. You know, the last uh, 10, 20 years have been, you know, a busy time for, for the European Union. You know, we've seen expansion and then um, sort of fall of social democracy, the rise of sort of populist, the green surge, all the debatable narratives that you can find over the last decade of, of European politics is uh, are we going to look in 10 years back on corona on the corona crisis as sort of another rise and fall another ebb and flow perhaps bringing back some big government spending after a sort of period of austerity or do you think this is actually going to be something which will be something of a turning point for the future of Europe well, uh, if I had a crystal ball, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's very interesting that everybody's posing this question. I mean, we are everybody's into discussions about will Corona change for the better or will it petrify the bad tendencies we had in the system? Yeah. Uh, and that goes for everything. I mean, there is a discussion about will we skip the capitalist system now? Will we now go for leaving the planes on Earth and having the blue skies that we are seeing now? Can we take something out of this crisis to make the world a better place? Or are we basically uh, path-dependently um, re-enhancing the flaws of the system that we have? Yeah, And, and bo for both, there are arguments. Yeah, I mean, for, for instance, let me say this, but the corona crisis is definitely enhancing Gender, gender splits, yeah? I mean, the women are out of the crisis. In all these crisis management things, you see only men. So there's a petrification of uh, the 1950s role model things in the gender discussions, yeah? So, um, so I, I think the question is wide open whether we can take the crisis for the better or for the worse. But with respect to Europe, one thing is more precise. Europe is basically nothing else than since 70 years, we are talking because of the 9th of May, 9th of May, 70 years, coal and steel community, 70 years of nie wieder Krieg, never war again. So that is what we are celebrating on May 9th, and it's very important. And what we learned in the European system, and for long we called it the naval functional method, is that in a system where we, where we basically consequently integrate ever further, ever closer union was the Maastricht Treaty of 92, ever closer union. So we are in a system that each crisis tells us to more integrate and to more work on our common solidarity and that we learn out of each crisis. The problem of Europe is that we lost that memory. Because in the 50s, we got out of the World War II, we got the Coal and Steel Treaty, we got the Treaty of Rome, and we went on. And in 92, still Mitterrand, Kohl, um, Delors could do the Maastricht Treaty. And we learned that out of the competition of currencies in the 70s, we had the plan, we had what Theodore Adorno would call an utopian design. And we could say because we had, for instance, competitions of currencies in the 1970s after Bretton Woods system failed, we had a utopian design, we need a common, a single currency. And we did it, we did it. But the banking crisis for me, then the 29 movement is basically the rupture in which the EU as system lost that collective memory that each crisis should be taken to work for more integration. And instead, since the last decade, what crises did to Europe is they were a pretext for renationalization. We went from banking crisis to euro crisis to austerity crisis to refugee crisis, and each crisis basically enhanced disintegration. And that is the pity, pity for me. And so the corona crisis for me is the big open question whether or not the corona crisis can bring us back to the memory of Europe, which is each crisis teaches us 
that we need to go for more integration after the crisis instead of taking the crisis as a pretext for renationalization. So now, what would need to be communitarized in this crisis, Corona, with respect to the situation before? Well, at least on continental Europe, I know the UK is not in this discussion, but in continental Europe, for me, the decisive question is this Corona bonds, Euro bonds question. Because what it would mean is that we communitarize bonds. And what we would communitarize is interest rates. We would work in a system in which the Italians and the Germans and the Dutch and the Portuguese and the Greeks have the same interest rates. If we don't do it, then after crisis, Germany would be able to lend on capital markets with, say, 0.5%, whereas the Italians would need to lend money with 2.5%. And because we are talking billions now, this would be a very, very big difference. So either we communitarize, in that sense, nobody would have an advantage on interest rates, and that would be a clear sign of solidarity, and it would mean we work together forever and nobody takes advantage. Yeah? If we don't do it, the Eurobonds, Corona bonds discussion, probably the northern countries like Germany, Austria, the Netherlands would take the privilege of having cheaper interest rates and take an advantage out of this. And that is precisely not coming back to Marcel Maus. What Marcel Maus says is a nation, because a nation shares the system of solidarity. And in that respect, it would mean the solidarity of interest rates. So if I had one wish for the outcome of Europe out of the corona crisis is we go back to our collective memory that we take advantage of each, each crisis to communitarize something. And in this crisis, it should be that we communitarize the bonds and the interest rates to give a strong signal for real solidarity. And I think that would help us a lot. Thank you so much, Ulrika. This has been absolutely fascinating. To, to hear your your angle and take on on the past and future of Europe. This has been a great pleasure um, and happy Europe Day. Um, and I hope that we'll have you on again at some point soon. I'm really, really pleased for this occasion. Thank you to all the listeners. Thank you to you for, for, for interviewing me. Uh, may I say, look on the websites, uh, Citizens Take Over Europe on 9th of May. There's a lot in the internet ongoing. We have panels from 9 to uh, 6 p.m. There is, by the way, uh, the prestigious British economist Adam Toos, which will be on one of the panels. There is um, Timothy Garden-Ash, which will do the opening panel with me. So that's perhaps also an incentive for some British listeners to uh, to go to the European Citizens Day on 9th of May. And I'm, I, if, if I can say this, I mean, hopefully we can find a solution for the British citizens to stay among us huh? because whatever will happen in the next years, uh, I would miss you so much. Thanks very much, Ulrika. Bye-bye. is run by volunteers. Everything we do, including this podcast and our shiny new and improved website, is with the help of our supporters. And we want to do more. We will soon be sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more via our Patreon. And with your support, we'll be doing a lot more overall on our platforms too. So please don't miss out and support us on Patreon. Europe Day, 
what have we done? But of course, we've written a quiz. It's going to be jam-packed with questions about geography, politics, uh, and European history. And to compete in it, we've got my co-host, Gabriel Hedengren, and the co-editor-in-chief of Europolex, Matthew Nicholson. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm not too bad. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. Uh, looking forward to this quiz. Looking forward to putting you all through your paces to become the <sighs> champion of European quizzes, um, or at least Europolex podcast quizzes, which have, there have been two. Um, and I lost to Tobias last time, so. Uh, well, thankfully, he's not, he's not here today, so uh, <laughs> we all have a chance. <laughs> he's not here to yeah. defend his title. Uh, he's yeah, I don't appreciate being on this side of the, <laughs> of the equation this time. Uh, but yeah, game on, Matthew. <laughs> so let's start with question one of our very tough, very difficult quiz. Why is Europe Day celebrated on the 9th of May? Long silence. <laughs> Was it the creation of the of the steel union? Correct. The ah. European coal and steel community was created on the 9th of May, announced for the first time in uh, a speech by Schumann, uh, the German cool. foreign minister. So well done, as also, Gabriel. Ah, that makes sense. Um, also known as the steel union. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> union. I'll, I'll allow that. Um, he's, not here. he's not listening. But yeah, that was actually 70 years ago, 70 years ago this year in 1950. Ah, so this is a big Europe day. Big year. A big year for Europe. That's obviously the European colon steel community is the, the precursor to the European Union as we know it today. Our next question brings us a little bit closer to today. How many countries have joined the EU since 2000? <laughs> 13. Correct. Oh, wow. Was that a guess? Wow. That was a guess. Uh, <laughs> I, had, I had the number 15 in my head for some reason, and, and we were at 28, but yeah. But, but, Unlucky but, number. Yeah, 13. Congratulations. You got the, got the right point. The countries that have joined since 2000, or 13 of them are Cyprus, Czechia, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Poland, Slovakia, Slovenia, Bulgaria, Romania, and of course, Croatia, most recently in 2013. For question three, Speaking of joining the European Union, what five countries are currently negotiating candidates for European Union membership? Uh, so do we get a point for each country? Or yeah, do let's do a point for each country. Let's do a point for each country. Serbia? Yep. Bosnia and Herzegovina? No. No. North Macedonia? Yes, North Macedonia. Albania? Yep. Turkey? Yep. One more. Montenegro? Montenegro. One. Montenegro. There it is. Uh, You're close to um, Bosnia and Herzegovina, but Bosnia actually aren't negotiating candidates. They're applicants. Question four in our quiz. Which EU member state has the smallest capital city by population? Malta? Correct. I had no idea of this, but Malta's capital city has six and a half thousand people in it. I know it's Valletta. That's the one. Yeah, well done. I'm going to give a bonus point for knowing the name of it. <laughs> That's like if Shetland becomes a, a European yeah. Union member state. It's the island of Shetland. Um, for context for our listeners, that's where Matthew comes from. Um, yes. In the far north of Scotland, because it's quite small. And I would be unsurprised if most of our listeners hadn't actually heard of it, if they aren't from the EU. Well, they, they have now. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and this is question five on our, on our quiz, is one that we've actually covered on the podcast before. 
Who is the youngest commissioner at just 28? Well, that's not fair, because now... <laughs> uh, I know I it's, a, it's, well. it's a Baltic representative. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I wrote the script. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll leave this to you, Gabriel. Is he the Latvian commissioner? No, it's not actually the Latvian commissioner. It's the Lithuanian commissioner. You're close, though. Uh, it's Virginia Sinkovicius. He's the fisheries commissioner. And only 28 years old, which I think is fantastic. Uh, makes me feel not great about it, but that's fine. Yeah, good for him. Uh, sixth question. Looks at the European Council, the, the collection of heads of states and government of European countries. How many members of the European Council currently hail from the Renew Europe group? Nine? Three. If you take an average of your two answers, <laughs> you get the right answer. It's, it's six. Um, uh, give you a bonus point for each of the countries you can name. Ooh, uh, France. France. Oh, <laughs> Netherlands. I'll give that one to, to Gabriel, um, and then the Netherlands is right. Um, Finland? Nope. Den uh, no, not Denmark anymore. Uh... Estonia. Yep, Estonia on the podcast just last week. Um, Czech Republic? Yep. There's two more. Luxembourg? Luxembourg is one of them. Oh, yeah. Latvia? Nope. Very close to Luxembourg. Belgium. Belgium. There we go. Uh, seventh question. What is the most common colour on European member state flags? Blue. Good red. Guess. No, it's red. Well done, Gabriel. Ah. Uh, it is red. I did the count. I did the. I did the count. It's more than white. More countries have red than they have white. What, what are the numbers? I think it's twenty-three. I, I did the counting earlier, so forgive me. I actually have the numbers. I think from off the top of my head, I think it's twenty-three have red, twenty-one have white, and nineteen have blue. Oh. Um, someone's bound to write in answers on a postcard. Um, <laughs> email me angrily if I've got the numbers wrong there. I wonder how many have red, white, and blue. That's That'd a whole other episode lot. of the podcast. Um, <laughs> we should have a flags week. We should definitely do that. I love flags. Mm. Good to know. Our eighth question is, in which European Parliament election did the European People's Party win its first plurality of votes and seats? 1994. 2009? No, it is 1999. The uh, EPP won its first priority from S&D, who held it since the formation of the European Parliament. Question nine on our quiz is, which EU member state has the easternmost point of the mainland European Union? That's not including uh, Cyprus or Malta or Réunion. Finland. Correct, Matthew. Finland is the right answer. And our final question is worth three points. I suppose if you name all three, there's three points. Three cities wow. in Europe. This isn't the EU. This is the whole of Europe. Which three cities are the most visited or were the most visited? Obviously, no one's visiting anywhere at the moment, but were the most <laughs> visited last year in the whole of Europe? Three cities. Paris, Paris. London, Barcelona. Oh, wow. You've got two of them, Paris and London. The third one. Berlin. Nope. Prague. Rome. Nope. Nope. Vienna. No. Nope. Moscow? Nope. Does Istanbul count? 
Istanbul is the right answer. Ah. Istanbul is the right answer, which well I, surprised me. I, I didn't know that so many people visited Istanbul, but I suppose there's a lot going on there. But obviously not right Great now. City. Looking forward to visiting all three of them very soon when this lockdown I'm looking forward, to, I'm looking forward to visiting anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> anywhere <laughs> no. here. Um, now for a brief moment while I count the scores. It's close. So the final scores, the final scores. You put us on the edge of our seats. <laughs> Who has been embarrassed by the other member of the Europelex team? And the answer is, the winner is Gabriel with yes. 11 points, beating Matthew with nine. Very close. Uh, fairly close. Very close. Yeah. Good Matthew, quiz, Gabriel. Uh, thank you for coming on and, yeah, and um, humoring us for this quiz <laughs> time. Um, <laughs> Oh, that, that was very fun. I, I certainly learned things. <laughs> and now you're, Gabriel you're, is the reigning champion of the Europe. You'll quiz, us, you'll quiz us on Shetland next time. <laughs> no, a holy Shetland episode just for you. <laughs> I, I, I would be very on board with that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Matthew. Stay well. <laughs> Thank you. You too. Thank you. segment on the podcast is who's who in the european commission Woo! i hear you say <sighs> exactly i'm excited too yeah. but someone who's even more excited is my co-host gabriel <laughs> hedengren who have you got to talk about always um so this episode i've picked maros shefkovic at the hat uh, he is Slovakia's EU commissioner and is in charge of inter-institutional relations and foresight um, this means he is tasked with ensuring that the framework agreement between the Commission and Parliament is respected and that Commission proposals respect subsidiarity and proportionality norms within the EU. Shevkovic started his career as a diplomat, serving Slovakia in Zimbabwe, Canada and Israel before becoming the country's permanent representative to the EU in 2004. So he's a real EU veteran. He has been a member of the Commission for over a decade now, serving from 2009 under both um, Jose Manuel Barroso, Jean-Claude Juncker, and now Orislav von der Leyen. In 2019, he stood as a candidate in Slovakia's presidential election, representing the center-left Shmir party, uh, but lost to the current president, Susana Chaputova, in the second round following a campaign focused on social issues, uh, where he took a very conservative anti-LGBT rights stance. I love that his commission title was Inter-Institutional Relations and Foresight. Like he's having to tell the future. Like that's part of his role. I know. I have an image of him now holding a crystal ball that I will never yeah. forget. Um, I'm sure he appreciates that. <laughs> My commissioner this week is hailing from uh, Czechia, from the Czech Republic. And she is uh, Vera Jourova. Uh, she is the Vice President of the European Commission for Values and Transparency. She is tasked with ensuring that the EU's democratic system is open, transparent, and protected from external interference. Uh, this includes looking into the uh, financing of political parties, uh, combating fake news, and she also leads the work on the EU's accession to the European Convention on Human Rights. 
Yurova spent more than a month in jail in 2006 on what later proved to be false corruption charges, uh, which then inspired her to pursue issues related to justice. Uh, she's been a member of the Liberal Annual Party since 2012, also having served as its deputy chairwoman. She was nominated as commissioner by the country's government in 2014 for the first time and served as the commissioner for justice, consumers and gender equality until the last EU elections and the new commission. Europa was an influential actor in the ratification and implementation of the EU General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, uh, which prompted uh, Time magazine to dub her one of the 100 most influential women in the world in 2019. like what we do which we hope you do subscribe and review this podcast and of course tell people about us also to stay up to date with european politics make sure you follow us on twitter facebook instagram and youtube you can find us at europelex.eu and at europelex across all social media and at europe underscore elex on instagram also check out our new website once again we're very proud of it see you next time stay home stay safe You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedenbrun. The managing editor was Polychronos Karempolis. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado. That's so sweet.